Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 41 Walt Disney would not rest on the animations because he could not rest on them anymore. He needed something less, co less costly, something new to restore the studio, as well as his sense of self. Cartoons had become, Wooly Reitherman said, a pain in the ass to Walt. The personnel problems, waiting around for animation to come in, changes, and all those things. I don't know of any features that sailed through. Reitherman might have added that the real reason for Walt's dismay was that cartoons had become too expensive to do, as well as Walt Disney had done them. But there was a way around these obstacles, and Walt had already been considering it long before the war, during the first economic pinch. He could reduce the amount of animation needed in a feature by combining the animation with live action, which was much cheaper and much faster to produce. He had thought of Alice in Wonderland as a prime possibility, with Alice as a real girl in Wonderland in animation, like the old Alice comedies he had made in the 1920s. But as the studio struggled with an Alice script, Walt seized on a new candidate, the Uncle Remus stories of Joel Chandler Harris. Walt would animate the tales themselves, but to accommodate the live action, he would frame them in a melodrama about a bullied and neglected white boy who seeks solace in the wise Uncle Remus. Thus, Walt would literally create two distinct worlds, a real one and a fanciful one. It was for Walt Disney, said animator Mark Davis, a way to get into live action and have his cartoon, too. At least since 1939, when he first began negotiating with the Harris family for the rights, Walt had been considering these stories, told in black dialect by a retainer in the Reconstruction era, for an animated feature, and by late summer of that year, he had already had one of his storymen synopsize the more promising tales and draw up four boards worth of story sketches. A year later, in November, while on his way to the Fantasia premiere in New York, Walt had stopped in Atlanta to visit the Harris home, to meet the Harris family, and, as he told Variety, to get an authentic feeling of Uncle Remus' country so we can do as faithful a job as possible to these stories. Roy had misgivings about the project, doubting that it was big enough in caliber, caliber and natural draft to warrant a budget over $1 million and more than 25 minutes of animation, but in June 1944, even before the war ended, Walt hired a southern-born writer named Dalton Raymond to write the screenplay, and he met frequently that summer with Raymond, his own staff, and director King Vidor, whom he was trying to interest in making the live-action sequences. It may have been the only time during the war after he had finished victory through air power that Walt seemed thoroughly engaged. Writer Maurice Rapp, whom Walt had hired to assist Raymond, called Walt insatiable. He ended every conference by saying, well, I think we've really looked it now, Rapp would recall. Then he'd call you the next morning and say, I've got a new idea, and he'd have one. Sometimes the ideas were good, sometimes they were terrible, but you could never really satisfy him. Rapp didn't know it, but this was the Walt Disney of old. As Raymond and Rapp finished, Rapp 
finished the screenplay late that summer and the studio announced the project, a problem arose. Members of the black community protested that any film version of the Uncle Remus stories was bound to portray black Americans in a servile and negative way. A vicious piece of hocus pocus, one group called it. Walt Disney was no racist. He never, either publicly or privately, made disparaging remarks about blacks or asserted white superiority. Like most white Americans of his generation, however, he was racially insensitive. At a story meeting, he had referred to the dwarves piling on top of one another in Snow White as a inward pile, and in Casting Song of the South, he noted a swell little, well, P-word he had found. Like most Hollywood producers, he had also engaged in racial stereotyping from a blackbird in the short Who Killed Cock Robin, who speaks in a thick drawl and blanches white when frightened, to the hipster crows in Dumbo, though the case has been made that the crows were sympathetic to Dumbo precisely because they understood what it was like to be ostracized themselves. Worse, in the pastoral scene of Fantasia, Walt enthused over the idea of a little black centaurette with a watermelon who is terrified when Pegasus's gallop when Pegasus gallops after her. She sees him and Jesus she goes like hell, Walt said at a story meeting. There would be a lot of laughs and it would give a definite lift to the whole thing. But if Walt had been racially insensitive, he now appreciated the minefield through which he was tiptoeing with the Uncle Remus film. The end situation is a dangerous one, Disney publicist Vern Caldwell wrote producer Percy Pierce as the script was getting underway. Between the end haters and the end lovers, there are many chances to run afoul of situations that could run the gamut all the way from the nasty to the controversial. Roy apparently had asked RKO, the Disney's distributor, to investigate in-picture experiences and said he foresaw interference from at least one organization, the League for the Advancement of the Inn, and Walt had instructed one of his publicists to meet with Bill Cupper, the sales manager of 20th Century Fox, to hear their experiences in distributing, in distributing Stormy Weather, which featured a black cast. Cupper said that in the South, the film had to be booked into two theaters, one for whites and one for blacks, people of color, that the studio got grief from both whites and people of color, and that the black had to be made in such a way, and that the film had to be made in such a way that scenes featuring black people could be cut or Southern exhibitors wouldn't show them. One of the reasons Walt had hired Rapp to work with Raymond was to temper what he feared would be Raymond's white southern slant. Rapp was a minority, a Jew, and an outspoken left-winger, and he himself feared that the film would inevitably be Uncle Tomish. That's exactly why I want you to work on it, Walt told him, because I know that you don't think I should make the movie. That you don't think I should make the movie. You're against Uncle Tomism, and you're a radical. Rapp made small changes in Reynolds' script, omitting references to in-boy and in-girl as if the children were generic, and cutting a line that a boy ran like a, like a black streak, and he claimed to have made larger ones, too, plunging the white family into poverty so that it would be clear the film was set during Reconstruction, and Uncle Remus and the other people of color were not slaves, scraping and bowing to white power, though in the final film, the whites were so well-dressed and genteel that one couldn't help but think of them as masters on a plantation. 
In addition to hiring the radical Rapf at a time when Walt was still steaming over what he had perceived to be communist influence during the strike, Walt did something else that was uncharacteristic. He sent out the script for comment, both within the studio. Gunther Lessing wrote Walt, I can't find a damn thing to criticize or suggest, and fondly recalled his own african-american nanny and outside the studio to producers soul lesser and walter wanger financier jonathan bell lovelace who sat on the disney board and ward green the head of king features syndicate most of all he solicited comment from people of color who lived in america among them the actress hattie mcdaniel who had won an academy award for her supporting role in gone with the wind and who praised the script after taking a role in the film he even invited Walter White, the secretary of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, to come to the studio and personally work with Walt on revisions, though White begged off, saying that the NAACP had no West Coast representative and that he wouldn't be coming out to California until November and then as a war correspondent. Meanwhile, Joseph Breen, who was charged with approving scripts under the production code of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association, had sent the Remus script to a Mississippi-born colleague for comment, and Walter Wanger had passed it along to Dr. Elaine Locke, a prominent black scholar and philosopher at Howard University, asking that he write Disney directly with his criticisms. Breen's colleagues suggested a few changes, eliminating the word darky, but he also warned that scenes of blacks singing happily could be resented by contemporary blacks. Dr. Locke wrote Walt that the film could do wonders in transforming public opinion about the end, but only if he shunned stereotypes, and he advised that Walt consult other black representatives. But to Wanger, Dr. Locke confided that Walt had shown bad judgment in not having contacted black leaders before having the script written. Now, he said, there would be a controversy that could have been avoided. The controversy was gaining momentum. One correspondent wrote Breen that the black press was already prepared to launch an attack on the film and that the film might cause serious trouble for the industry. With this hint of trouble, Walt reverted to form. He asked an associate to determine if the black newspapers leading the protest were communist-controlled, and he apparently enlisted the FBI to find out why the black community was harassing him, once again suspecting that communists were targeting him. The FBI responded that Leon Hartwick, the theatrical editor of the black paper Los Angeles Sentinel, had launched his own investigation into the Uncle Remus film and learned that the black actor Clarence Muse had been asked by the studio to render an expert opinion on the contemplated picture. Muse said he told the studio that the black characters were insufficiently dignified, an objection that he said Disney dismissed. Muse then appealed to black newspapers to protest the film. This was all Walt needed to know. In Walt's version, Muse had come to him and said he wanted to play Remus. Walt refused, and now Muse had launched a personal vendetta with no doubt communist assistance. Ironically, Walt had had someone else in mind for Remus. The athlete, singer, actor, and political activist Rob Paul, Rob, oh, Paul Robison, whose politics were well to the left of Muse's. Walt had contacted Robison as early as February 1941 after seeing him on the stage in George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, and Robison had agreed to review the general outline of the script and offer suggestions or criticisms. 
Though the film was in hiatus after the war began, Walt nevertheless kept open his lines of communication with Robison, apologizing when he was unable to attend a reception in Robison's honor, and saying how much he was looking forward to working with him on Remus. Somehow, possibly because of politics, Robison was no longer under consideration when Walt revived the film in 1944. Instead, he tested a number of other black actors, practically every colored actor, he once said, before finding, virtually by accident, 40-year-old James Baskett, who appeared on the Amos and Andy radio program but had no film experience. The fact was that Walt himself had had very little experience in live-action films either, only the Alice comedies, The Reluctant Dragon, and Saversky's scenes in Victory Through Air Power. Though Stokowski's scenes in Fantasia and Saversky's in Victory had been shot on Soundstage 1, it was not fully equipped for live action, and the estimated cost of refitting it for that purpose was just under $200,000, or about a third the entire cost of Dumbo. In fact, Jonathan Bell Lovelace was as worried about the Disney's inexperience as about the objections from the black community. He suggested that they partner with one of the major studios. Instead, Walt contracted with Samuel Goldwyn, with whom he had collaborated for years on the aborted Hans Christian Andersen project, and to whom he had as a close he had as close a relationship as he had with any producer in Hollywood with the possible exception of Walter Wanger. Goldwyn Goldwyn also lent the studio his cinematographer, Greg Toland, who had shot Orson Welles' legendary Citizen Kane. The total cost of Goldwyn's services would be $390,000, steep but necessary under the circumstances. The filming began in December 1944 in Phoenix, where the studio had constructed a plantation and cotton fields for outdoor scenes, and Walt left for the location to oversee what he called atmospheric shots, missing Diane's birthday, and just barely making it home in time for Christmas. So eager was he to make a real movie amid the government work that he was back again in February, and then again in March. Even as the live action was shot, the bulk of the animation was going to have to wait. With its war contracts, the studio could spare only a few animators, and the ones who did work on the film proceeded slowly. Wilfred Jackson and Percy Pierce, who directed in tandem, Jackson the animation and, per and Pierce the actors, took the same deliberate approach to the live action, and Walt, obviously tense and hoping to save money, wasn't pleased, scolding Jackson that they were spending too much time on these scenes. Yet, for all their care, Walt had to come to the rescue on the final day of shooting when Jackson discovered that the scene in which Uncle Remus sang the film's signature song, zippity doo hadn't been properly blocked. We all sat there in a circle with the dollars running out and nobody came up with anything, Jackson would recall. Then Walt suggested that they shoot Baskin in close-up, cover the lights with cardboard save for a sliver of blue sky behind his head, and then remove the cardboard from the lights when he began singing so that he would seem to be entering a bright new world of animation. Like Walt's idea for Bambi on ice, it made for one of the most memorable scenes in the film. But all of that seemed to have taken place a long time ago when Walt returned to the project after the war to complete the animation. 
In June 1946, the film, now called Song of the South, to the consternation of the Harris family who preferred the original Uncle Remus, was finally completed, the first non-war themed Disney feature in nearly four years. Walt was pleased. Though it contained less than a half hour of animation, that limit allowed the animation to be done as painstakingly as in the old days. Mark Davis, alluding perhaps to how innervating the war work was, said that almost all of the animators that worked on it would have to say that they never did anything that was more fun than that, in part because they had such great voices with which to work. Milt Call went further. He called it kind of a high in animation. They weren't the only ones who thought it might be a return to form. Saw Walt Disney's Song of the South this morning, and it is, in my opinion, the most delightful creation that Walt has thus far, thus far brought to the screen. RKO executive Ned Depinay beamed in a telegram he sent to Gus Ezel, the manager of the Radio City Music Hall, and has same wide audience appeal as Snow White, though Vern Caldwell wrote Walt skeptically that while this might be Depinay's real feeling, it was at least the way he is talking it up. <clears throat> Walt heard the same kind of enthusiasm from other quarters, but also a more sobering prediction. The Audience Research Institute had determined that the highest potential of the film was $2.4 million, less than half what the studio had expected. Disney publicist William Levy said the figure surprised and shocked him until he realized that the studio had been feeling the pulse of the trade, while Ari had been feeling the pulse of the public. Now, Levy wrote Roy, they could only hope that word of mouth might save the picture. Meanwhile, Walt left the studio on November 6th for the film's premiere at Lowe's Theater in Atlanta. The dim financial prospects notwithstanding, if Walt Disney had hoped to regain his artistic standing with the critics, he did not. Bosley Crowther in the New York Times complained, more and more Walt Disney's craftsmen have been loading their feature films with so-called live action in place of their animated whimsies of the past, and by just those proportions has the magic of these Disney films decreased. Citing the ratio of live action to animation at two to one, he concluded that is approximately the ratio of its mediocrity to its charm. Still, the film wound up grossing $3.3 million, better than the ARI estimate, and more than the $2.2 million gross of Make Mine Music. The most scathing criticisms, however, weren't aesthetic, they were political. The release of the film had revived all the protests in the black community that had lain dormant while the film itself had lain dorm dormant. Many found abhorrent the idea of Uncle Remus happily serving a wealthy white family while he lived in a shanty. Walter White of the NAACP complained that the film perpetuated the impression of an idyllic master-slave relationship, which is, a, which is a distortion of the facts. Congressman Adam Clayton Powell called it an insult to minorities. The theater chapter of the National Inn Congress threw a picket line around the Palace Theater in New York, where the film was playing, and had its protesters carry placards reading, We fought for Uncle Sam, not Uncle Tom. Producer and columnist Billy Rose accused Walt of having caved to corporate interests and warned, you stopped being Walt Disney and became Walt Disney Inc. And he added, you know, chum, you're not just another movie producer. Producer, you're the guy we brag about. Even Maurice Rapp, who, co 
who co-wrote the film, said he agreed with the attackers, but the worst criticism, certainly the most telling, may have been a remark in the B'nai B'rith Messenger, the publication of the Jewish social and charitable organization, that Song of the South tallies with the reputation that Disney is making for himself as an arch-reactionary. Walt might have been mystified if he hadn't had the communists to, communists to blame. He liked the film, and he especially liked James Baskett, who he told his sister Ruth was the best actor I believe to be discovered in years. Long after the film's release, Walt stayed in contact with Baskett, even picking up a record of the singer Burt Williams for him when Walt was in New York, because Walt knew Baskett was a fan of Williams. More, when Baskett was in ill health, Walt began a campaign to get him an honorary Academy Award for his performance, saying that he had worked almost wholly without direction and had devised the characterization of Remus himself. Thanks to Walt's efforts, Baskett did get his honorary Oscar at the 1948 ceremonies, then died a few months later, after which his widow wrote Walt thankfully that Walt had been a friend indeed and we certainly have been in need. Even with Song of the South under his belt, Walt Disney was restless. Let's do anything to get some action, he, sa he said he told Roy during this period. Restlessness was his congenital condition, expressing his fear that if he wasn't moving forward, he was moving backward. His early features from Snow White through Bambi spoke to maturity and the assumption of responsibility. They didn't address what happened after maturity was attained. For a man who usually had to be pried away from his beloved studio and traveled only because the war work had compelled him to do so, he was frequently on the road after the war as if to burn off energy that he could no longer burn off on his films. Heading to his retreat at Smoke Tree in the desert, or to the Sugar Bowl for skiing, or to confer with the Dollies at Del Monte. As Song of the South was being completed, he even took a brief trip to St. Louis, stopping in Kansas City along the way, and driving dreamily through his old neighborhood, lamenting how dilapidated it now looked. And in November 1946, after the Atlanta premiere of Song of the South, he flew to New York, then boarded the Queen Elizabeth with Lillian, Percy Pierce, screenwriter John Tucker Battle, and their wives for the crossing to England and on to Ireland to gather material for a film on leprechauns. It was his first European trip since the triumphant tour in 1935. If he was restless, he was spinning in a dozen different directions, none of which seemed to excite him the way the old animations, or even Song of the South, had. He had returned to Los Angeles on December 17th, the day before Diane's birthday, which he had missed so often, and began the new year juggling the compilation film about American heroes, another combination live-action animation called So Dear to My Heart, an animated version of Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and an animated Edgar Allan Poe story that had been suggested to him by the British actor James Mason. It would, of course, be a new departure for us and something the public would never expect, Walt wrote Mason, clearly searching for ways to change his image and reinvigorate the studio. He was even thinking of asking Alfred Hitchcock to direct. But with the economic gloom still not having lifted as he had hoped, and the cartoons still not finding favor, Walt was beleaguered and despondent, and though he always claimed that he functioned better in adversity, and that a kick in the teeth may be the best thing in the world for you, he had been kicked in the teeth for years now, and the kicks were not abating. 
When he came back to animation after the war, Frank Thomas observed, Walt never had the same enthusiasm. It was never like it was, in the, was on the early pictures, where he knew every frame of the film. Moreover, the layoffs in 1946 and attrition had shrunk the workforce. Despite Walt's promises to stockholders that the studio was on the rebound, only an emergency loan of $1 million from RKO late in 1946 rescued the company from insolvency. When Wooly Reitherman returned to Burbank in 1947, he recalled that there was quite a lot of down feeling at the studio. He would see Walt eating at the penthouse club, and Walt always seemed to be a little worried. One animator remembered a story conference where Walt was clearly distracted. The man who had been pitching the story was forlorn at Walt's lack of interest. Walt looked at him and said, You haven't anything to worry about. It's me. I'm the one that has to worry. Gee, gee, I've got to stay up all night thinking about things for you guys to do. He was always thinking about ways to save the studio, always worrying. One night after work, Walt sauntered down to Roy's office on the second floor of the animation building, and the two brothers sat there until roughly eight o'clock, pondering their predicament. Look, Roy said as he told his brother angrily, breaking the silence, you're letting this place drive you nuts. That's one place I'm not going with you. And Roy stormed out. He didn't sleep that night. Neither, he said, did Walt. The next morning, Roy was sitting at his desk, still fretting, when he heard Walt's footsteps in the hallway and his hacking cough. He came in and he was filled up, Roy said. He could hardly talk. And Walt said, isn't it amazing what a horse's ass a fella can be sometimes? Though he was only 44, in addition to the mental strain, he wasn't feeling well physically either, which made it even more difficult to cope. Always slight and fragile, save for his time in France when his frame filled out, he suffered from a painful flare-up of an old polo injury, for which he received daily diathermy treatments in his office, and which got so bad that he had to be hospitalized early in 1947. His cholesterol rating was just under 250 milligrams, where 180 milligrams was normal. His teeth bothered him. He would soon need reading glasses, and he couldn't seem to shake colds, possibly because of his chain smoking. Between the tensions at the studio and the nagging problems with his health, one of the most famous and celebrated men in America wrote his robust postman brother, Herbert, about how much he envied Herbert's life. Of his brother's new trailer and the freedom it provided, Walt wrote, I'd give a lot for a little of it, and believe me, I mean it. But it wasn't just the sense of corporate crisis or middle-age infirmities that were afflicting Walt Disney. In the same way that the strike had stiffened and soured him, he had undergone another personal transformation during the war, one that paralleled his country's transformation. America had entered the, po the war powerful but naive. It emerged from the war as the dominant nation in the world. In President Truman's words, spoken on VJ Day when Japan surrendered, it held the greatest strength and the greatest power which man has ever reached. Within the next two years, the United States would enjoy unprecedented prosperity and abundance. In 1947, it produced nearly half the world's manufactures, which led to a sinking unemployment rate, rising wages, roughly a 45% rise in just four years, and a skyrocketing birth rate, nearly one million more births per year than during the Depression. 
After two decades of isolationism, not unlike Walt's own isolation in his studio, the country had also been forced to assume a new international responsibility. What publisher Henry Luce had called in for his famous 1941 life called for his called for in his famous 1941 life essay, The American Century. In Luce's view, the studio had to change its sense of itself as it shouldered new global obligations. It had to become the custodian to the world. Walt Disney, who represented America to much of the world, had entered the war as one of the nation's most popular entertainers, the guy we brag about, as Billy Rose had said, not only for the quality of his work, but also for the seemingly naive and unpretentious way he produced it, that appealing American primitivism of Walt's. Despite the studio's ongoing problems, Walt had emerged from the war as something else, a corporate burger and the embodiment of the new imposing, powerful America, helping to transmit its values around the globe, or, as historian Jackson Lears would later put it, a central figure in the corporate reclamation of the national mythology, the redefinition of the American way of life from a vague populism to an equally murky notion of free enterprise. As Lears indicated, it was difficult to put one's finger on exactly what constituted the change, but like the country, Walt Disney now seemed somehow hegemonic, which was another reason he lost favor with intellectuals and critics. Even his employees saw it. If no one else was in the room, if you were one-on-one -on -one with Walt, Ward Kimball recalled, things were a lot more agreeable. He didn't feel he had to demonstrate his position and you could talk to him. But when you got into a room full of people, he was a different man. In a room full of people, he was no longer a folksy outsider charged with making people laugh or cry. He wore his responsibility heavily. The war and the war films had moved him inside the establishment. He even looked different. The boyish young Walt Disney had dressed casually and flamboyantly, often with a scarf or a handkerchief around his neck rather than a tie, and with a sweater rather than a suit or sports jacket, and often with a floppy fedora. One reporter writing in 1939 described a Tyrolean jacket to which Walt had become addicted, purple on the outside, red satin on the inside, with silver buttons the size of half dollars. It's the sort of thing that would overwhelm a lesser man, the reporter observed, but he wears it gracefully, proud of the sensation it creates. Another reporter called Walt's outfits a pied ensemble and said he was wearing moccasins at the time of their encounter. But now, though he still favored those crushed hats that, according to Lillian, he thought made him look dashing, and though he still often wore sports shirts and sweaters, he was also going to Bullock's department store for fittings two or three times each year, and his suits were more likely to be solid blue or gray and conservatively cut than wildly patterned and loose-fitting. Even his once unkempt hair, which had added to the rackish effect, was increasingly tamed with pomade. One reason for this transformation from a heedless entertainer to a cautious corporate leader who consulted ARI surveys rather than rely on his own instincts was the need to make films without also making mistakes. The studio couldn't afford the risk. 
Another reason was a growing conservatism in Walt that was itself a function of the studio's embattled status, of his government work and his role as American goodwill ambassador, of his suspicions of communist intrigue after the strike, and even possibly of his age, now that he was in his mid-forties and no longer a reckless young visionary. Walt, who had never aspired to be a businessman or industrial kingpin, seemed to recognize the change and gamely struggled against it with his Dolly and Poe projects and the more modernist animation style, but the dull, uninspired animations, the sluggishness in the studio now, and the racial obtuseness of Song of the South were unmistakably the products of an artist who was less dexterous and less contrarian than Walt Disney had been before he had a large studio apparatus to maintain studio apparatus. It was the Warners who now played the subversive role that Walt Disney had once played with the early Mickey Mouse cartoons. Walt's animations seemed to be aimed squarely at the middle so as not to offend, which made them a function not only of a different Walt Disney, but of a different America. As art critic Robert Hughes would describe the change in Disney, he turned himself from a cartoonist into the old master of mass cult. What this meant in cultural terms, according to historian Stephen Watts, was that Disney's critiques of the social order gradually gave way to a powerful preservationist impulse. If the evidence of Walt's transformation was his conservatism and the lead-footed animations devoid of energy or menace, the change also registered in his image in the press. The young Walt Disney, whom reporters had loved to extol as democratic, informal, unself-conscious, self-effacing, and even childish, though in reality he had long ceased being so, had been supplanted by another Walt Disney, who almost seemed to be carved in granite like Washington or Lincoln. This Walt Disney was a symbol of different side of post-war of a different side of post-war America from the one the Warners purveyed. Not so much plucky and emancipated as mature, decent, genial, solid, self-confident, successful, responsible, and a bit complacent. He was a man without vices, passions, or picadillos, the very personification of square Midwestern probity. In effect, just as Mickey Mouse's success had converted Mickey from an imp to a logo of harmless happiness, so that by the late 1940s he had traded his red shorts with their bright yellow buttons for a suburban heights shirts and slacks, Walt Disney's seeming success had converted him from what he once jokingly, call, jokingly called a careless temperamental artist to the country's favorite businessman. As one studio veteran put it, the late 40s was the time when Walt Disney discovered Walt Disney. He had been subsumed by his studio. Now he was beginning to be subsumed by his own by his new image. Having succumbed to the change, it was almost as if he were searching for the Walt Disney within him, the old human Walt Disney, when he embarked in June 1947 on a visit to Godric, Ontario, to which his grandfather had come from Ireland nearly a century earlier, and in which his father had been born. Walt and Elias had often talked of making this trip together, but Walt had always been busy and Elias had died. Now Walt flew to New York with Lillian, Lillian's sister Hazel, and Hazel's husband Bill Cottrell. In New York, they picked up a car and drove unhurriedly through Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine before heading across the Canadian border to Montreal, Toronto, and then Godrich. 
With his father's first cousin, Peter Cantillon, he visited the cemetery in nearby Holmesville where Disney's and Richardson's, Walt's grandmother's family, were buried, and drove to a farm near Godrich where the ruins of his great-grandfather Robert Richardson's log cabin survived. It was in that cabin, he was told, that Walt's grandfather and grandmother had been married. Walt eagerly snapped photographs, only to discover later that it was not the actual house. Lillian, who had reluctantly accompanied him, never let him forget his mistake. Then he drove out to Potter Farm, where the Disneys had once lived. He even visited his father's old schoolhouse. It was the sort of solemn, nostalgic pilgrimage that Walt Disney seldom made, but he needed the journey now. He was lost. With the animations no longer holding his attention and the combination films only an expedient, Walt kept searching for something that might pique his interest and help spark the studio. During the war, he had waxed enthusiastic over the educational potential of films and film strips. It is not visionary or presumptuous for us to anticipate the use of our own medium in the curriculum of every schoolroom in the world, he had told a national radio audience in 1943. Indeed, educators were clamoring for Disney, and as early as 1944, William Benton of the Encyclopedia Britannica had entered into negotiations with Walt to make a series of educational films, anywhere from 6 to 12 annually. Probably the worst student you ever had has now become connected with education, Walt joked in a letter to his old teacher, Daisy Beck. The following spring, the president of Stanford University, Donald B. Treseder, invited Walt and Lillian to the campus in Palo Alto for a weekend to discuss educational films and models. Meanwhile, Walt assigned Carl Nader, who had worked on the war films, to head an educational film division at the studio. But as with most of his contemplated projects in this period, he was soon disillusioned when he discovered that the quality of the films would be severely compromised by the minimal return he could hope to get, so that he had made them he would so that had he made them, he would have been back in the same position as when the studio was producing the training films. His real objection, though, may have been psychological rather than financial. In making educational films, he would have been conceding that he was edging away from entertainment, a concession he was not yet ready to make. He would make entertainment, wrote Jimmy Johnson, who worked at the studio, and if the educators discovered some educational value in his films, then that was fine with him. Ben Sharpstein said that Walt was blunter. We can't bore the film with these things, he recalled Walt saying repeatedly. We can't be boring. We've got to be entertaining. Eventually, Nader left the studio for Academe and the division closed. But Walt had not given up entirely on finding a way to be both entertaining and educational, particularly if he could do so inexpensively. During the war, the coordinator for Inter-American Affairs had suggested a documentary on the Amazon Basin, which was made as the Amazon Awakens. At the same time, the studio was inundated with requests from naturalists about the possibilities of collaborating on nature documentaries, and one of them, apparently at Walt's request, had even laid out a program of shorts. Roy promptly quashed it, saying it would certainly take a long time and a lot of film, but Walt was not deterred. From his days on the farm in Marceline, he had loved animals and was fascinated by them and thought others would be fascinated too. One visitor to the studio remembered Walt gently plucking a worm from a tree and saying, this is one of God's creatures and we don't harm them. 
Late in 1944, even as the studio was deep into its war films, Carl Nader and Walt had visited with an official of the New York Zoological Society with a plan, as Nader described it, to eventually make films on animals, bird life, fish life, and any other type of living creature around which there is a real story to tell. While Walt was considering subjects for the series, Ben Sharpstein approached him in the hall one day, observed that returning veterans were beginning to homestead in Alaska, and suggested that there might be a story in it. Walt told him to pursue it. Inspired by a book written by a former Stanford University president named David Starr Jordan, who had helped negotiate a treaty between Russia and Japan on seal hunting, the book was told from the seal's point of view. Sharpstein said he contacted a husband and wife photography team in Alaska, Alfred and Elma Melody. In fact, Al Melody had written Walt in 1940, offering pictures of animals on the Alaskan range, which Walt, who was in pre-production for Bambi, declined. But according to Melody, it was Walt, not Sharpstein, who contacted him sometime later about shooting film of Alaska. Nothing specific, Melody remembered, just Walt saying, you know, mining, fishing, building roads, the development of Alaska. So the Melodies shot. They shot for months. They shot, in Melody's words, everything that moved. People cutting timber, catching salmon, building railroads, climbing Mount McKinley, hunting game, more than 100,000 feet of film. The idea, inchoate as it was, was that the film would tell a story about America's last real frontier. Unfortunately, the footage was precisely what Walt said he had wanted to avoid. It was boring. Too many mines, too many roads, more animals, more Eskimos, Walt had said. Walt had wired Al Melody, to which Melody wired back, how about seals? Walt okayed the couple going to the Pribilof Islands, which were the mating grounds for thousands of fur seals. The couple stayed for a year, much of the time in darkness due to the shortened days at the Arctic Circle, filming the battles between young unattached males and older bulls, the matings, the births of the pups, and the seals' winter migration to the Pacific Ocean. The only communication they said they received from Walt as they shipped back their footage was an occasional telegram with the same command, more seals. Roy had been right about the nature documentaries. They did take a long time and a lot of film to produce. Walt had conferred with the Melodies at the studio shortly after the end of the war, and they visited again a year later with Sharpstein in December 1946, while Walt was in Ireland, though Sharpstein said it wasn't until a few years later, as the project languished, that Walt decided to cut the Eskimos altogether and focus exclusively on the seals. Walt professed not to care what these cuts did to shorten the film's length. He told Sharpstein whatever it ran, it ran. In August 1947, Walt visited Alaska himself to see some of the things firsthand and get a little idea of Alaska to help him in making the picture, Roy said, but also to spend some time with his 11-year-old daughter, Sharon, who accompanied him as he jumped around the territory. It would be yet another year before the Melody's footage would be edited into what would be called Seal Island. Now that the film was finally finished after all these years, RKO, the Disney's distributor, was not interested. Without the Eskimos or the story of Alaskan homesteading, the film was only 28 minutes long, too short for a second feature and too long for a short. RKO saw no way of distributing it. Then there was the subject matter. They all say, who wants to watch seals playing house on a bare rock, Roy told Walt after returning from a sales trip to New York. 
Though the film had been made cheaply for just over $100,000, Walt was not about to let it disappear. As he had done so many years before with the skeleton dance, when he convinced an exhibitor to preview the cartoon, he arranged to have the film shown at the Crown Theater in Pasadena, and Pasadena the last week of December 1948. The audience was spellbound. It knocks the people right in their bloody hats, said Disney artist Harper Goff, who attended the first screening. But Walt wasn't interested only in demonstrating the film's uh, audience appeal. By showing Seal Island for a week at the theater, Walt had qualified it for the Academy Award for Documentary Short Subject, which it won a few months later. Now it was saleable. When Sharpstein walked into Walt's office the morning after the ceremony carrying the Oscar he had picked up for the studio, Walt ordered his secretary to take it to Roy's office and tell him to hit RKO over the head with it. It was the first of what Walt would call his true-life adventures, nature documentaries that brought Walt's old narrative skills to natural events, and, it's a, and in its own way, it would prove just as revolutionary as his first sound animation, or Snow White. Seal Island would become the model not only for Disney documentaries, but for nature documentaries generally. A strong plot, anthropomorphized animals with emotions imputed to them, and a musical track that Jim Alger, who directed Seal Island, compared to the music in the Disney animations, which made the documentaries into real-life cartoons. Wherever we saw a change, we tried to take rhythmic natural action and edit in such a fashion that a musical score could accompany it, leading some people to marvel, Alger said, at how they got the animals to perform to the music. On the other hand, while audiences marveled, these devices prompted purists to complain that Disney had falsified nature and the service of his post-war kish, a complaint that would dog him for the rest of his life. Oh, there's a note there. The tone of a Disney nature film is nearly always patronizing, Richard Schickel would write in a typical criticism. It is nearly always summoning us to see how very nicely the humble creatures do, considering that they lack our sophistication and know-how. The Disney version, page 290. The bigger problem was fabrication. I wanted to take them, otter cubs, to Yellowstone Park, get off beaten track trail, wrote a naturalist who was working with the studio on a film, have them meet cub bears we had lured by feeding regularly near a lake, then watch and photograph them meeting and playing. Would be a real natural comedy spot. Of course, this will take time, but theatrical when we get it. Will be inimitable and always remain a Disney classic. Emil Lears to Ben Sharpstein. But Walt, for once, seemed undisturbed. He had found a way to combine entertainment with education. He had won a small battle in what was becoming a long losing war. Stay tuned for more next Monday.